Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Mal Warwick. Mal is an author, activist, and impact investor who supports nonprofits and progressive political candidates. His books include Values Driven Business, How to Change the World, Make Money, and Have Fun, which he co-authored with Ben Cohen, the co-founder of Ben & Jerry's. Now, his latest book is called The Business Solution to Poverty, Designing Products and Services for 3 Billion New Customers. He co-authored that with Paul Polak, the award-winning founder of Windhorse International. Mal was formerly chairman of the Social Venture Network and co-founder of Business for Social Responsibility. Welcome, Mal. It's an honor to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much, Miriam. It's great to be with you. Thank you. You know, it says in your bio that you are one of the partners in the One World Football Project, which distributes virtually indestructible soccer balls to disadvantaged young people around the world. Now, I'm not sure our American listeners appreciate what a huge contribution that is, or or even what the status of soccer is everywhere else in the world. What, well, what, gave, to- what gave you that idea? Well, it wasn't my idea. It was uh, an idea that came into the very fertile mind of one of my partners, uh, Tim Yonigan, the the inventor of the One World Football. He is a musician and uh, and an inventor, and he uh, he's traveled the world and knows full well what importance soccer, or as it's called elsewhere in the world, football, has for children all over the planet. Uh, uh, Just to put this in perspective a little bit, uh, there are more fans for for one single soccer club in England than there are for the entire NFL. (laughs) They uh, they have a a documented uh, documented set of, of nearly 700 million fans at the uh, Manchester United Football Club. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there is there's hardly a place anywhere on the planet where soccer isn't played. Uh, the uh, if you list the top ten sports in the world, none of the American sports even come into the top five. And I I believe you illustrated in your book um, th- this kind of visual image of of poor young people kicking a deflated soccer ball around in the mud. So this is a a wonderful contribution. Uh, And it is part and parcel of your social vision. What got you into this activism mode? I I see that you actually started out in the Peace Corps. That's right. And that that is where I can find the roots of the uh, concern that I have for poverty around the world. Um, that was back in the 60s. I came in uh, the third year that Peace Corps was in existence and uh, trained uh, in the U.S. and in Puerto Rico and then went to Ecuador for a total of nearly four years in the Peace Corps. Uh, I spent most of my time working in the uh, with indigenous peoples in, uh, in, in Ecuador, both on the coast and the highlands and in the Amazon region. So I got a, a very uh, broad view of uh, the problems and the, uh, the potential 
uh, that lies in the uh, the billions of of poor people around the world. You know, it's interesting. Both of the books that I mentioned in the introduction talk about um, a business solution, a solution where the people um, offering the the service or the products actually make money at it, as opposed to um, the well-meaning charities around the world. Why do you feel it is so important to have this a, a commercial viability attached to these projects? Well, uh, first I want to make clear that I am very supportive of philanthropic efforts of all sorts. And I would, I would say that, that, uh, nothing that I, that I say or do in the area of uh, business in addressing the problems of poverty should detract from that support. However, there is a very clear pattern <clears throat> throughout the world uh, in, among the uh, the thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of philanthropic projects that have been undertaken uh, to address the problems of poor people. Uh, none of them, none of them has gone to significant scale. And the upshot is that there are now more poor people on the planet defined as people living on $2 a day or less than there were on the entire world in 1950 when the whole idea of of ending poverty began. Uh, there are 2.7 billion people, nearly two out of five people on the planet, who live on $2 a day or less. And this is despite more than six decades of very uh, intensive effort by the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, philanthropists, NGOs, you name it, to bring an end to the, to the problem of poverty. Why hasn't it arrived at a solution? Why haven't we seen more progress? Well, the answer is really pretty, pretty simple. It's a lack of resources. Yes, it's, it seems like an awful lot of money goes into these efforts, and over, the, over time it certainly has been the case. But there is a total of perhaps $150 billion a year that goes into development projects worldwide. This is in an economy for the, for the entire planet that amounts to $75 trillion this year. Now, there is simply no comparison. We all have trouble. Uh, most of us have trouble with very big numbers like that. But let me tell you, $150 billion is a tiny drop in the ocean of the, of the world economy. So the only place that the resources exist, and it really is more than just money, it's, it's uh, human resources, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, innovation, the potential for innovation that lies in the, uh, in the private sector, as well as the money that makes it possible to take those efforts to scale. Uh, instead of addressing uh, uh, poverty in a village or a province or a single country, we can we can envision multinational program, programs that address the problems of hundreds of millions of people at a time. You're actually saying to use the vaunted business acumen of the West to apply 
the, the, the very grounded business principles to creating scalable projects that will return, not only return investment to the investors, but provide education on, uh, and, and employment on the ground. So you would bring up whole, e- uh, ecosystems or ecosystems, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, there's that I agree with most of what you just said. However, this is not just business acumen of the West. Uh, I would be very loath to uh, suggest to people living in China or in India that the U.S. has a monopoly on business acumen. They, <laughs> they yeah. have done. There, you cannot, you you cannot stack up a hundred uh, Chinese entrepreneurs or a hundred Indian entrepreneurs against a hundred Americans uh, attempting the same things and expect to see much difference. Sure. Sure. And you do make the point um, that you it, it requires a much different mindset. It requires really getting down into the the countries right in, down to the village level. Yes. Yeah. Expand on that, because that was well, such an important point. Well, the, the 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 truth is that that even though we we see and hear so much about the the slums of the the big cities, Mumbai and Nairobi and Johannesburg and uh, Sao Paulo, uh, the fact is that the the large majority of the world's poor, the truly poor people in the world, live in small villages. Uh, it's a rural problem. It is not primarily an, an urban problem. And if we really are going to go to scale in addressing the problems of poverty, we somehow have to get solutions out into those villages, which are often very isolated, perhaps even days walk away from the nearest road. Uh, And that is going to require a totally new mindset, a mindset that is capable of uh, attacking the problem that's called in business the last mile solution. Uh, how do you actually deliver products and services to people in those isolated rural areas? Well, there are business models that work that can accomplish that, but they have not been employed to any meaningful extent uh, by the existing businesses that do bus- that, that, that do business in those countries. Mm-hmm. Give us an example of uh, one of the projects that um, you used in the book that illustrates the approach. Well, um, my my co-author, Paul Polak, has been at work uh, launching four companies to uh, illustrate uh, and, and prove the concept uh, of the design that we lay out in, in the business solution to poverty. Uh, it's a company called, one of those is a company called Spring Health. It's, uh, it's doing business in India, seeking to deliver clean drinking water, uh, to villagers in eastern India. Uh, the company ha- was in, uh, pilot stage for about a year and a half, uh, in order to overcome all sorts of hurdles, but finally went, uh, to commercial scale. Uh, and are leaving the pilot stage, uh, this last June. And it is now in full-blown commercial rollout and is expanding at the rate of 50 villages a month. Um, the, uh, the design of this company 
is to deliver water to rural Indians in in eastern India and in some of the most troubled and and poverty stricken provinces of the country, uh, using local people to deliver the the water to demonstrate it to market it to uh, and to develop the business itself uh, throughout the country. The staff is now uh, well at last count there were 105, but it will it will quickly grow because the multiplication factor is very, very strong. I mean, 50 villages a month adds up a lot. Next year, we expand to 100 villages a month. Uh, eventually, we'll be expanding at the rate of 450 villages a month in the, in the model. And um, by, the, by the end of, of five years, we expect to be reaching 5 million people in India. By the end of 10 years, we expect to be reaching at least 100 million, not just in India, but in a number of other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Now, the notion of clean water uh, has a lot of ramifications in the economic life of the village uh, in terms of, of sickness and put into perspective all the different um, uh, kind of associated benefits that come from clean water. Well, the, you've, you've alluded to the uh, the major benefit, which is of course improved health, um, and that's the obvious one. Uh, the 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 most dramatic of them being uh, a sharp sharp reduction in the amount of diarrhea that uh, that children have, which is uh, as you know often fatal to children under five. The, uh, but there is a, there's a hidden advantage here. People living in very poor countries, regardless of the culture, uh, living in villages where they are isolated from uh, information about uh, good health care practices, uh, are very likely to spend a substantial portion of their income uh, they're very limited income on uh, on health care. And of course, most of the time they are buying bogus remedies. Uh, they buy uh, drugs that have uh, passed their their expiration date. Uh, they uh, go to uh, well, in Latin America, they call them curanderos. They go to uh, essentially witch doctors or local healers who, uh, may or may not have any uh, help to offer, but will always be happy to pretend that they do. Uh, they can spend hundreds of dollars a year uh, when they their income is uh, not much greater than that. Mm-hmm. And the, the amount of money that poor people can save on wasted expenditures for health care simply because they regularly drink clean drinking water uh, is really a, a dramatic advantage as well. It's an economic advantage. Yeah, that, I was I was very impressed by that. But that, there's there's another one. Uh, there's also the fact that people who are who are ill, and most people are ill much of the time uh, in in poor villages, uh, are unable to work. They're unable to work the fields. They're unable to go to their 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 day jobs if they are lucky enough to have them. Uh, their productivity is lower, even if they do manage to get to work. 
So the, uh, the improvement in health has uh, numerous economic benefits. Now, the, there's also fallout to the local economy. You specifically uh, talked about getting a distributed model, which is uh, having both um, distribution, manufacture, sales, and delivery down to the last 500 yards. Explain that to our listeners, please. Well, um, Spring Health India has a, a total headcount of 105 or, or thereabouts. They're all Indian. Uh, the only non-Indian person even involved in the company in any kind of active way is my co-author, Paul Polak, uh, the founder and, and chairman of the company. Um, and so we're talking about people from the, from the, uh, from the outset who are natives of the country. Uh, and in fact, most, nearly all of those 105 people come from the same villages where we are doing business. Uh, they are people who uh, may have gotten uh, uh, no more than a few years of education, but with the, the kind of, of, uh, of training and selection and uh, supervision, they're able to perform these uh, jobs that, that uh, involve relatively simple steps but uh, are regarded as, as as very good jobs locally. Uh, they distribute the uh, the the uh, chlorinated solution that is used to purify the water at the village level from the towns where it's produced to uh, the individual villages. The uh, the the water is sold through local uh, mom and pop shops in in the villages. Uh, and the shopkeepers get uh, a big boost in profits from the uh, from the sale of the water alone. And in addition to that, they get more more traffic, so they sell other products as well. Uh, then there are the people who deliver the uh, the water to people's homes. Eighty percent of the people prefer to pay a little bit more to have the water delivered regularly to their homes rather than uh, for them to come into the village center to, uh, to pick it up from, the, uh, fr- from the, the, st- the shop where the water is for sale. So the, the, wa- the, the economic impact on the village as a whole is significant uh, in, the, in, the for- in the form of uh, increased wages, uh, in the form of, uh, of increased profits for the shopkeeper, uh, and in the form of increased uh, savings uh, f- from the impact of the water itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, the ramifications were just uh, so it, broad and impressive. Now, what kind of investment is required to uh, jumpstart a country? Uh, you, you start with a model of like 50 villages, well, in this, in the case of Spring Health, the, I, I believe that the number of villages involved in the, uh, in the pilot was 35 or 37. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, it's somewhere between, uh, between 25 and, and 50 villages to, uh, to get a broad enough, uh, a broad enough cross section of the population of the, the area you've chosen to start in. 
So you you had other projects like the the treadle pump and um, uh, lighting and charcoal. Um, all all of these projects were arrived at by looking at the needs of the people on the ground and then finding sourcing a technology that could be made ruthlessly affordable. I loved that term that you used. Uh-huh. Um, why is it so important to uh, get it down and, and to a cost that a poor person can afford rather than have it subsidized, say, by the government or by an agency. You gave some really good reasons in your book. I'd like you to explain that for us. Well, there, the, I think the fundamental reason, quite apart from the financial considerations, is that uh, if, if people are going to adopt uh, a solution that will have a significant impact on the way they live their lives, They've got, to, they've got to own it. It can't be imposed from without. Uh, I mean, you know the old adage, um, uh, you can... Uh, give a man a fish. Give the man a fish or you can teach him, uh, teach him to fish. Yeah. Uh, well, the fact is that most of the time, programs that teach people to fish actually give them the fishing rod. Um, and so they often... Uh, the people who are given the fishing rod will find that it somehow goes, uh, gets broken in a, in a short period of time and they're no longer fishing after a week or two or a couple of months. Um, what we would contend is that it's important to, uh, to teach the man to fish and to, uh, and then to make a fishing rod available to him on terms that he can afford so that he can pay it off over time. You loan him the money. Uh, but he's got to pay it back. And when he does that and has uh, actually takes ownership of that fishing rod, then he is going to be far more inclined to continue fishing and make it into a livelihood for himself. Yeah, I was so surprised when you described the multitude of pumps, for example, that um, are lying useless because they were owned by the government. They're kind of in no man's land. Um, they broke down and nobody is around to repair them so the people go back to drinking dirty water. Yes, it's absolutely true and it's a worldwide reality that is too little appreciated by American donors. Uh, this was actually the rule, not, not the exception, uh, in, in decades past when, for example, CARE, a very well-known American-based charity, um, uh, had for, for a considerable period of time uh, a huge program in well drilling. Uh, they would send technicians into uh, one village after another and dig wells. Uh, and they, they were great wells. They were very well designed and very well, uh, very well uh, constructed. And then the, the, the technical team would move on to the next village having, uh, having uh, completed uh, one well. Well, uh, it would seem that after maybe a couple of months, could have been a year, uh, something would break in the well. What are the villagers going to do? Well, in the first place, nobody owns it. Uh, in the second place, uh, they don't know how to fix it. Uh, even if they have the spare parts, which they probably don't, 
even if the spare parts are available somewhere in the country, it's probably not near where where the village is. So the upshot is that it's really been a wasted effort. It's been an effort that uh, has illustrated once again uh, that people need to really buy into the concept uh, that you want to convey to them. And if they don't, well, forget about it. Mm. You came up, or one of the companies came up, with a pump that could be delivered including drilling a well or or tapping into a well for $25 that's impressive well actually this uh this is a pump called the the treadle pump it was invented by a norwegian engineer back in the 70s uh and the uh the ngo that was uh that employed the engineer uh started to try to uh to uh, put it in, put it to work in villages in northern Bangladesh, uh, they were they succeeded in getting a few thousand of them out into people's hands and in working, but uh, they didn't know how to market the treadle pump. Uh, this was back in the in the early 80s. Um, so they went to uh, my co-author Paul Polak's organization, uh, International Development Enterprise, which was a nonprofit, a business-oriented nonprofit. Uh, and they said, help us commercialize the treadle pump. So IDE set to work, and over the space of uh, a decade, they managed to sell uh, one and a half million treadle pumps. Uh, and an additional one and a half million or so were sold by uh, by other entities, uh, UN agencies, uh, NGOs, businesses. Uh, and the treadle pump became one of the breakthrough successes in rural development uh, over the uh, in recent decades. One of the few things that really has gone has really had a, a profound economic impact where it has been employed. And this is both in South Asia and in uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere around the world. Now that was uh, that was a predecessor, a nonprofit effort subsidized by the contributions that supported uh, supported uh, international development enterprises. Uh, we're in this current round of effort. Um, Paul is uh, is engaged in for-profit, fully market-driven enterprises, businesses, for-profit businesses, uh, and. Uh, I described briefly uh, Spring Health. Uh, there are three others in various stages of development. Uh, one of them uh, will collect agricultural waste from uh, the fields that uh, farmers, uh, uh, from farmers' fields near villages, uh, bring them into into villages, uh, set up uh, kilns where where the waste can be roasted. Uh, and can be converted into a low carbon emission fuel, uh, which has very high commercial value and can provide a substantial amount of, of new income for the village as a whole and for the farmers who, uh, whose agricultural waste uh, is roasted there, plus mm-hmm. all the jobs that are created in the process. Yeah, these are, are um, sort of uh, uh, charcoal briquettes. 
they're they're not it's not charcoal exactly it's um it's a substance that's been called uh, green coal or um uh or uh, bio coal mm-hmm. uh it's really um it's really a little different from charcoal it has a uh it has a uh, low carbon low carbon emission uh rating when uh when burned it can be sold to uh say coal-fired electric uh, generating plants in China or in Europe uh and of course there are lots of them in both places uh and can help them lower their carbon emissions by 20% or more uh and provide carbon credits which are very valuable for uh, for them this this confers a very high uh commercial price for the uh, the green coal you know, it's interesting to contrast this with the somewhat wrong-headed uh, notion of using ethanol as an admixture to gasoline. Right. Where you uh, cut down forests to raise corn to create ethanol. Yes. It is just ridiculous. Anyway, getting back to the treadle pump and the, the spring health, I was so tickled when you described how you actually market these things well marketing it turns out is by far the biggest challenge in uh, in distributing and selling products and services to poor people um, you can design it you can price it you can produce it uh, but try just Try figuring out how you can actually persuade people that they need to buy it. Uh, even when you sit down with them face to face and have a long conversation with them and they know they need to buy it and they will buy it. Uh, the fact is that, uh, that, uh, people who are living on two dollars a day or less are not too surprisingly very value conscious. And for you, uh, for them to, to, uh, spend what is truly hard-earned money on anything at all uh, requires them to be fully convinced. So, yeah, first of all, you're not going to put put ads in the newspapers or magazines because they, for the most part, don't read. Uh, you are not going to use uh, use ads on uh, on television or on radio because they don't have. Radio or even radios in most places, and or, or certainly not televisions. Uh, they are not hooked up to the internet, so you can't use uh, email or uh, or uh, web ads. What are you going to do? How are you going to actually promote village by village, especially if you're going out 50 villages per month in an expanding business? You have to work up a very systematic, very um, a closely tailored marketing program that uses traditional media that appeal directly to the uh, to people in their own terms. So, uh, in the case of Eastern India, for example, uh, the uh, Spring Health uses teams of of professional actors who go village by village to put on plays uh, that illustrate the uh, the value. Of the of the uh, of the safe drinking water, uh, the, the impact that it will have on the family. They uh, they have uh, demonstrations. Uh, they bring in 
teams of uh, people, 10 at a time, to, uh, to go door to door in every neighborhood of the village. Uh, and they have a, tr- a, a local uh, vehicle, a, a, a equivalent to a truck. Maybe it's a, just simply a, a cycle trolley that goes down the pathways as the team is going out, making, uh, uh, having a sound system which broadcasts, uh, broadcasts, uh, music to support the work of the, uh, of the door to door team. Uh, in the case of the treadle pump, uh, the, uh, uh, international development enterprises actually produced Bollywood movies. <laughs> uh, they would hire, uh, they would hire people, um, directly from Bollywood. They had a Bollywood star anyway to, to headline the movie. And they, uh, the story would be a traditional Bollywood star story. It's a love story where the, the male lead and the female lead are somehow at odds and, and all kinds of, of terrible things happen and they're pushed apart even though they know they must get together until finally they reconcile and they come together in a great song and dance act, and they're going to live happily ever after because of the treadle pump. <laughs> uh, if, if I recall correctly, the Bollywood movie was so successful, they're planning on doing a new one each year. Oh, they were doing an each one. This was back in the 80s. Yes, oh. they were. In fact, uh, back in the 80s, you know, 30 years ago, they were doing this, at a at the cost of twenty five thousand dollars per movie, if you can imagine that, it's like the old days of Hollywood. Oh, it definitely is like the old days of Hollywood. <laughs> that is so great. You know, I was uh, struck by how uh, similar many of the considerations of such businesses are to the marketing of any new business anywhere in the world. I mean, when you're talking about getting to know your market, setting up um, a, a team, uh, doing the, 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 getting the logo, the infrastructure. Um, what uh, is the kind of target audience that you think you want to reach with this impassioned really vision of creating socially uh, responsible commercially based ventures well um, we would like uh, and Paul especially would like to see big companies um, Unilever for example companies that have a uh, uh, achieved a certain amount of, uh, of acclaim around the world for their, uh, their socially responsible vision, uh, to take up the challenge and, and to, uh, invest in and, and launch uh, businesses along the lines that we describe in the book. But, but we, we both realize that it's much more likely that if businesses like this are going to be, uh, started uh, that it's that they're going to be they're going to be arranged by um, by uh, entrepreneurs. It's it's individual entrepreneurs often starting from scratch, 
who are most likely to undertake these uh, admittedly very risky ventures uh, in hopes of achieving something really, uh, really big. And what would be really big is to serve 100 million customers or more at the uh, bottom of the pyramid uh, and help transform their lives. You're actually penciling out um, an impact of a, a $10 billion revenue over 10 years. That's yeah. B with a billion with a B. That's, that's right. Um, Paul has calculated uh, that uh, in order to, in order to reach uh, scale, global scale, in order to have a truly measurable uh, impact on the incidence of poverty in the world, that it is necessary to build very large multinational ventures. Uh, each of these companies that uh, he is engaged in starting and that uh, we hope will be started by many, many others as well, uh, needs to be designed, in the case of those that are underway, has been designed, uh, to uh, to reach at least 100 million customers over the space of uh, of 10 years to realize uh, revenues annually of $10 billion or more uh, and to generate a big enough profit, uh, a profit that's commensurate with the great risk that, uh, that has to be undertaken uh, in the first place, uh, so that um, international uh, market capital uh, can be drawn to the enterprise. What would be the capitalization required for something of that scale? Surprisingly little. Um, we uh, we believe that um, uh, ultimately, uh, uh, once the uh, once the venture reaches uh, global rollout and is moving into multiple companies, uh, multiple countries simultaneously, uh, there will be millions and millions of dollars required. Um, but it would seem to me unlikely that uh, that if the company if the company is well designed, well conceived, and well managed, if everything's well executed, that uh, one of these ventures could be capitalized for uh, significantly less than a hundred million dollars. Which by standards nowadays is really quite modest. It's extremely modest if you're talking about a $10 billion a year business. Hmm. You describe projects in certain universities like Stanford that focus on developing the kind of technologies um, that could cause a breakthrough. Can you describe some of them for us? Yes, there, there's a course uh, at uh, Stanford Business School called uh, Entrepreneurial Design for Extreme Affordability, uh, which uh, not too surprisingly was, uh, was started uh, by my co-author, Paul Polax, um, not too many years ago. I think it was about five years ago. Um, this is a course that, um, that draws both... Uh, Undergraduates, I believe, I think it is an undergraduate course, but I, I, I'm not certain. Um, it's extremely popular and it's always oversubscribed, uh, very competitive to get into. 
and the uh, the, the graduates uh, of this course uh, often go on to launch businesses based on the uh, the ideas that they develop with the help of, of faculty in the course. Um, there is one uh, business that's now a very uh, quickly expanding around the world called D-Light Design, uh, which has uh, developed uh, developed uh, solar uh, lanterns that uh, are widely in use in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and in an increasing number of countries uh, that, uh, that bring advanced technology to bear at affordable prices uh, at the village level. Mm-hmm. And again, the ramifications of this light mean that um, youngsters can actually read and study uh, yeah. after it gets dark. They can improve their education. Uh, it, it, it leads to a, a almost seismic uh, shift in the, the educational and, and uh, economic prospects of yes. these young people. Yes, it does. And, it, it, of course, it, it has a, a positive impact as well on the rest of the family. I mean, uh, if the family has a, a little business, which is quite possible, there are lots and lots of, of little uh, cottage industries uh, at, in poor people's homes around the world, they can work after dark, they, they, uh, which they may very well want to do uh, to increase their income. Yeah, one of the things that we don't appreciate, among many, is the difference um, that it makes to a person's life to be earning three dollars a day instead of two dollars a day. Oh, oh, it's absolutely. Uh, it can be the difference between uh, making it possible for the uh, for the family to keep uh, to keep their children in school, including the girls. Uh, uh, into high school rather than yanking them out in the fifth grade. Hmm. Now, you have set your sights, you and Paul have set your sights quite high in terms of the impact that you are hoping for this kind of, of uh, business. Would you turn your nose up at smaller projects, uh, entrepreneurs who perhaps um, are not really uh, up to the notion of a $10 billion business? Well, no, absolutely not. And, and in fact, I, I, should, I should clarify that, um, I mean, one of, the, uh, one of the nonprofit organizations that, uh, that I support uh, enthusiastically uh, is a is a small NGO uh, based in San Francisco, uh, with most of its staff and operations in South Asia, uh, in uh, Nepal, India, and uh, Bhutan, uh, which is building, uh, working with villagers to build uh, combination libraries and community centers uh, that are sustained by businesses launched by the villagers themselves. Uh, now, over the, sp- the over the space of more than twenty years, uh, this organization, Read Global, uh, has uh, has built. Uh, uh, I've 
I don't know the the total number. I'm guessing a hundred of these centers, um, and every one of them has had a profound impact on the villagers. Very often living in very isolated villages, sometimes days away from the nearest road. And uh, I I think that the transformation that these centers have helped to uh, engineer in those villages is uh, extremely gratifying. I, I think it's wonderful. And I'm I, I remain a donor uh, and, a, and a friend to the organization. Um, and I think that uh, the impact that uh, Read Global has on uh, a million villagers uh, is a very worthy cause. Uh, I think that, vil- that uh, businesses that uh, can impact uh, uh, hundreds of thousands or, or uh, a few million uh, people through the uh, the work that they that they do uh, are also well worthy of support. Uh, I'm, but the point that Paul and I make is that if the 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 problem is poverty, and if the problem is that two out of five people on the planet are still living on two on two dollars a day or less, and we want to do something meaningful about that, then you have to take a very visionary approach. You've got to aim big. You've got to go for scale. Mm-hmm. Scale has been the uh, the bete noir of of development experts since day one. Mm. Yeah, you have to go for scale, but you also have to go for something that meets a real need. Uh, yes. You you were giving the example of Reed uh, International with, the, with their library community centers. You also gave the example in your book of well-meaning people who who endowed libraries that then were kept under lock and key and nobody could access them. Yes, there are there are many nonprofit organizations which are engaged in that sort of work, and uh, the the their impact by and large, uh, is marginal uh, precisely because they uh, are solutions imposed from without and do not have the buy-in of the villagers. Read Global will only respond to to inquiries from villages. Uh, The villagers come in, apply to read on their own hook, for help in putting together a library and community center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they must found and sustain a business uh, with the profits used to hire librarians and to maintain the community center. Well, I think it's brilliant that it, combine, that it, it combines the community center so it brings people into contact with the books in the first place. Mm-hmm. Now, um, what about local U.S. Poverty. Is there a similar approach that could be applied in our own country? Well, Paul and I have spoken about this. Um, he's told me that uh, in a couple of different areas, he has uh, tried to apply the same kinds of uh, business savvy principles to working with uh, with poor people here. Uh, he worked with uh, homeless people in Denver, and he worked with uh, farm laborers uh, in an agricultural region, uh, heavily 
Hispanic in population uh, in Colorado. And in both cases, he, uh, he was able to, uh, to work with the local people uh, to develop uh, business ideas into reality uh, that did make a difference in their lives. Uh, it's, the, the businesses would obviously not be designed in quite the same way here in the United States. But yes, a similar approach could, could be taken. What we are, what we advocate is, uh, an approach that, uh, as you know from, from the book, we call zero-based design. It simply, uh, this simply means you start by, uh, by gaining a, an, a, an in-depth appreciation for the problems the, that people perceive for themselves. Uh, the solutions that they themselves see, uh, their needs, their aspirations, uh, and then you develop a business around some one strategic response uh, to one of the fundamental needs that comes up from talking uh, uh, from talking to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, uh, the the essential. The essential approach we're talking about here with zero-based design is, you know, figure out what really, really needs to be done and then do it. Well, I, I, as you say, that, that really is the, the bottom line. And I get the sense that there is a lot more openness um, in the world for this kind of approach, a lot more people are wanting to do good and to do well by doing good. Yes. Is this your impression? Absolutely. Uh, from time to time, I speak uh, to groups of, uh, of business students uh, or, or more general uh, students uh, at universities. And there is among the so-called millennial generation uh, a, a, a growing hunger for opportunities to uh, to act on personal values in in their lives, there's a uh, there is a clear distaste for just uh, doing work to just to make a buck. Mm-hmm. Yes, people have a very difficult time getting jobs in the first place, uh, and uh, that uh, that does compound the problem. But even so, there uh, there are innumerable. Uh, young people nowadays who are focused on getting jobs that are meaningful uh, and are not willing to, uh, to to go to work just to uh, to work in for some soulless yeah. organization. Yeah. So uh, you actually um, have a business that uh, seeks investment for this kind of operation how would people find out more about it and and uh, more about your your book and your work well i'm not sure what uh, organization you're referring to um we're not in the business of uh i'm not personally and and uh paul is not as a as a general rule in in raising money for investment uh, oh oh i see you did that until 2010 you, you well, fo- well, I worked in fundraising for nonprofits, and right. uh, uh, that was uh, that was my uh, fundraising agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still chair the board. I still have a small uh, interest in the company, but 
it, it was not investment. It was uh, it was fundraising using uh, using mail and uh, online communications to uh, to communicate with uh, with large numbers of individual small donors. So do you think that um, such businesses, whether here or abroad, would be able to go to the market in the same way that commercial businesses can go? Well, uh, it's um, the financial world is in flux now. Um, there, there is um, there's some development in the area of social impact investing, in which I have some some experience that that uh, is making it possible for some companies to uh, to receive uh, what's called patient capital uh, to support their mission driven activities. Mm-hmm. Um, the even more promising approach uh, that is becoming a significant reality is crowdfunding, uh, where All people right. contribute uh, or invest online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think that we'll we'll see that there will be continuing change in the marketplace, just as there is uh, in the. Uh, desire of entrepreneurs to uh, to do well by doing good. Well, we can only uh, hope that your vision takes root. We have been speaking with Mal Warwick, the author, the co-author with Paul Polak of The Business Solution to Poverty, Designing Products and Services for 3 Billion New Customers. Mal, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Miriam. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. I want to remind you that all the books, films, and interviews that we discuss here can be found on our website at ncreview.com. Well, next week, our guest is going to be Phil DeVeet. His book, Follow Your Heart, tells about his heroic journey from crippling paralysis to extraordinary success. A very impressive tale you won't want to miss. And now we're going to close with our track of the week called City of Light by the fabulous Gina Citoli. Gina Citoli. Gina's website is ginacitoli.com. That's G-I-N-A-C-I-T-O-L-I dot com. Gina is one of the performing stars who are part of our Transformational Speakers and Performers Bureau, Luminary Voices. 
You can find out more about Gina and all of our other luminaries on luminaryvoices.com. Well, that's our show for today. I do hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.